0: chapter 17 of don o'hara the girl who laughed this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by leanne howlett don o'hara the girl who laughed by edna ferber chapter 17 the shadow of terror Two days before the date set for von Gerhard's departure the book was finished, typed, re-read, packed, and sent away. Half an hour after it was gone all its most glaring faults seemed to marshal themselves before my mind's eye. Whole paragraphs that had read quite reasonably before now loomed ludicrous in perspective. I longed to snatch it back, to tidy it here, to take it in there, to smooth certain rough places neglected in my haste. For almost a year I had lived with this thing— so close that its faults and its virtues had become indistinguishable to me. Day and night, for many months, it had been in my mind. Of late some instinct had prompted me to finish it. I had worked at it far into the night, until I marveled that the ancient occupants of the surrounding rooms did not enter a combined protest against the clack-clacking of my typewriter keys, and now that it was gone I wondered dully if I could feel von Gerhard's departure more keenly no one knew of the existence of the book except nora von gerhard Blackie, and me Blackie had a way of inquiring after its progress in hushed tones of mock awe also he delighted in getting down on hands and knees and guiding a yardstick carefully about my desk with a view to having a fence built around it bearing an inscription which would inform admiring tourists that here was the desk at which the brilliant author had been wont to sit when grinding out heart-throb stories for the humble post He took an impish delight in my struggles with my hero and heroine, and his inquiries after the health of both were of such a nature as to make any earnest writer-person rise in wrath and slay him. I had seen little of Blackie of late. My spare hours had been devoted to the work in hand. On the day after the book was sent away I was conscious of a little shock as I strolled into Blackie's sanctum and took my accustomed seat beside his big desk. There was an oddly pinched look about Blackie's nostrils and lips, I thought and the deep-set black eyes appeared deeper and blacker than ever in his thin little face. A week of unseasonable weather had come upon the city. June was going out in a wave of torrid heat such as August might have boasted. The day had seemed endless and intolerably close. I was feeling very limp and languid. Perhaps, thought I, it was the heat which had wilted Blackie's debonair spirits. It has been a long time since we've had a talk-talk, Blackie. I've missed you— "'Also, you look just a wee bit green around the edges. "'I'm thinking a vacation wouldn't hurt you.' "'Blackie's lean brown forefinger caressed the bowl of his favorite pipe. "'His eyes, that had been gazing out across the roofs beyond his window, "'came back to me, and there was in them a curious and quizzical expression "'as of one who was inwardly amused. "'I've been thinking about a vacation. "'None of your measly little two weeks affairs, "'with one week on salary and the other without.' "'I ain't going to take my vacation for a while. Not till fall, perhaps, or maybe winter. But when I do take it—say, girl, it's going to be a real one.' "'But why wait so long?' I asked. "'You need it now. Who ever heard of putting off a vacation until winter?' "'Well, I dunno,' mused Blackie. "'I just made my arrangements for that time, and I hate to muss em up. You'll say, when the time comes, that my plans are reasonable.' There was a sharp ring from the telephone at Blackie's elbow. He answered it, then thrust the receiver into my hand. "'For you,' he said. It was von Gerhard's voice that came to me. "'I have something to tell you,' he said. "'Something most important. If I call for you at six we can drive out to the bay for supper, yes? I must talk to you.' "'You have saved my life,' I called back. "'It has been a beast of a day. "'You may talk as much and as importantly as you like, "'so long as I am kept cool.' "'That was von Gerhard,' said I to Blackie, "'and tried not to look uncomfortable. "'Hm,' grunted Blackie, pulling at his pipe. "'Thoughtful, ain't he?' "'I turned at the door. He, "'He's going away day after tomorrow, Blackie,' I explained, "'although no explanation had been asked for. "'To Vienna.' He expects to stay a year or two, or three. Blackie looked up quickly. "'Goin' away, is he? Well, maybe it's best all around, girl. I see his name's been mentioned in all the medical papers and the big magazines and all that lately. Getting to be a big bug, Von Gerhard is. Sorry he's goin', though. I was planning to consult him just before I go on my... vacation. But some other guy'll do. He don't approve of me, Von Gerhard don't.' For some reason, which I could never explain, I went back into the room and held out both my hands to Blackie, his nervous brown fingers closed over them. "'That doesn't make one bit of difference to us, does it, Blackie?' I said gravely. "'We're—we're not caring so long as we approve of one another, are we?' "'Not a bit, girl,' smiled Blackie. "'Not a bit.' When the green car stopped before the old folks' home, I was in seraphic mood— I had bathed, donned clean linen and a dutch-necked gown. The result was most soul-satisfying. My spirits rose unaccountably. Even the sight of von Gerhard, looking troubled and distraught, did not quiet them. We darted away, out along the lakefront, past the toll-gate, to the bay road, stretching its flawless length along the water's side. It was alive, with swift-moving motor-cars swarming like twentieth-century pilgrims toward the mecca of cool breezes and comfort. There were proud limousines, comfortable family cars, trim little roadsters, noisy runabouts. Not a hoofbeat was to be heard. It was as though the horseless age had indeed descended upon the world. There was only a hum, a rush, a roar, as car after car swept on. Summer homes nestled among the trees near the lake. Through the branches one caught occasional gleams of silvery water. The rush of cool air fanned my hot forehead, tussled my hair, "'slid down between my collar and the back of my neck, "'and I was grandly content. "'Even though you were going to sail away, "'and even though you have the grumps and refuse to talk "'and scowl like a jabberwock, "'this is an extremely nice world. "'You can't spoil it.' "'Behut,' von Gerhard's tone was solemn. "'Would you be faintly interested in knowing "'that the book is finished?' "'So, that is well. "'You were wearing yourself thin over it, it was then quickly perfected. Perfected? I groaned. I turn cold when I think of it. The last chapters got away from me completely. They lacked the punch. Von Gerhard considered that a moment as I wickedly had intended that he should. Then, The punch? What is that then, the punch? Obligingly, I elucidated. A book may be written in flawless style, with a plot and a climax and a lot of little side surprises, but if it lacks that peculiar and convincing quality, poetically known as The Punch, it might as well never have been written. It can never be a sixth bestseller, neither will it live as a classic. You will never see it advertised on the book review page of the Saturday Papers, nor will the man across the aisle in the streetcar be so absorbed in its contents that he will be taken past his corner. Von Gerhard looked troubled but the literary value, does that not enter? I don't aim to contribute to the literary uplift, I assured him. All my life I have cherished two ambitions. One of them is to write a successful book, and the other to learn to whistle through my teeth. This way, you know, as the gallery gods do it. I am almost despairing of the whistle, but I still have hopes of the book. Whereupon von Gerhard, after a moment's stiff surprise, gave vent to one of his heart-warming roars. Thanks, said I. Now tell me the important news. His face grew serious in an instant. Not yet, Don. Later. Let us hear more about the book. Not so flippant, however, small one. The time is past when you can deceive me with your nonsense. Surely you would not have me take myself seriously. That's another debt I owe my Irish forefathers. They could laugh, bless em, and the very teeth of a potato-crop failure— and let me tell you, that takes some sense of humor. The book is my potato crop. If it fails, it will mean that I must keep on drudging, with a knot or two taken in my belt. But I'll squeeze a smile out of the corner of my mouth somehow, and if it succeeds—oh, Ernst, if it succeeds—then, Kenchin? Then it means that I may have a little thin layer of jam on my bread and butter. It won't mean money—at least I don't think it will. A first book never does, but it will mean a future— It will mean that I will have something solid to stand on. It will be a real beginning, a breathing spell, time in which to accomplish something really worthwhile, independence, freedom from this treadmill. Stop, cried von Gerhard sharply. Then, as I stared in surprise, I do ask your pardon. I was again rude, Nictoire. But in me there is a queer vein of German superstition that disapproves of air castles sick ein bilden we call it the lights of the bay pavilion twinkled just ahead the green car poked its nose up the path between rows of empty machines at last it drew up panting before a vacant space between an imposing scarlet touring car and a smart cream-coloured runabout we left it there and walked up the light-flooded path inside the great barn-like structure that did duty as pavilion glasses clinked chairs scraped on the wooden floor A burst of music followed a sharp fusillade of applause. Through the open doorway could be seen a company of Tyrellese singers in picturesque costumes of scarlet and green and black. The scene was very noisy and very bright and very German. "'Not in there, eh?' said von Gerhard, as though divining my wish. "'It is too brightly lighted and too noisy. We will find a table out here under the trees where the music is softened by the distance and our eyes are not offended by the ugliness of the singers.' But inexcusably ugly they are, these Tyrolese women. We found a table within the glow of the pavilion's lights, but still so near the lake that we could hear the water lapping the shore. A cadaverous sandy-haired waiter brought things to eat, and we made brave efforts to appear hungry and hearty, but my high spirits were ebbing fast, and von Gerhard was frankly distraught. One of the women singers appeared suddenly in the doorway of the pavilion, then stole down the steps and disappeared in the shadow of the trees beyond our table, The voices of the singers ceased abruptly. There was a moment's hushed silence. Then from the shadow of the trees came a woman's voice, clear, strong, flexible, flooding the night with the bird-like trill of the mountain yodel. The sound rose and fell and swelled and soared. A silence. Then in a great burst of melody the chorus of voices within the pavilion answered the call. Again a silence. Again the wonder of the woman's voice flooded the stillness, ending in a note higher, clearer, sweeter than any that had gone before. Then the little terrible her moment of glory ended, sped into the light of the noisy pavilion again. When I turned to von Gerhard, my eyes were wet. "'I shall have that to remember when you are gone.' Von Gerhard beckoned the hovering waiter. "'Take these things away, and you need not return.' He placed something in the man's palm, something that caused a sudden whisking away of empty dishes and many obsequious bows. Von Gerhard's face was turned away from me, toward the beauty of the lake and sky. Now, as the last flirt of the waiter's apron vanished around the corner, he turned his head slowly, and I saw that in his eyes which made me catch my breath with apprehension. "'What is it?' I cried. "'Nora? Max? The children?' He shook his head. They are well, so far as I know. I-perhaps first I should tell you, although this is not the thing which I have to say to you. Yes, I urged him on impatiently. I had never seen him like this. I do not sail this week. I shall not be with Gluck in Vienna this year. I shall stay here. Here? Why? Surely-because I shall be needed here, Don. Because I cannot leave you now. You will need- someone a friend i stared at him with eyes that were wide with terror waiting for i knew not what need someone for what i stammered why should you in the kindly shadow of the trees von gerhard's hands took my icy ones and held them in a close clasp of encouragement norah is coming to be with you Nora, why tell me at once, at once.' "'Because Peter Orm has been sent home, cured,' said he. The lights of the pavilion fell away and advanced and swung about in a great sickening circle. I shut my eyes. The lights still swung before my eyes. Von Gerhard leaned toward me with a word of alarm. I clung to his hands with all my strength. "'No,' I said, and the savage voice was not my own. "'No, no, no. It isn't true. It isn't. Oh, it's some joke, isn't it? Tell me it's—it's something funny, isn't it? And after a bit we'll laugh—we'll laugh, of course. See? I am smiling already.' "'Don, dear one, it is true. God knows I wish that I could be happy to know it. The hospital authorities pronounced him cured. He has been quite sane for weeks.' "'You knew it? How long?' You know that Max has attended to all communications from the doctors there. A few weeks ago they wrote that Orm had shown evidences of recovery. He spoke of you, of the people he had known in New York, of his work on the paper, all quite rationally and calmly, but they must first be sure. Max went to New York a week ago. Peter was gone. The hospital authorities were frightened and apologetic. Peter had walked away quite coolly one day. "'He had gone into the city, borrowed money of some old newspaper cronies, and vanished. "'He may be there still. He may be—here. Ernst, take me home. Oh, God, I can't do it. I can't. "'I ought to be happy, but I'm not. I ought to be thankful, but I'm not. I'm not. The horror of having him there was great enough, but it was nothing compared to the horror of having him here—' I used to dream that he was well again, and that he was searching for me, and the dreadful realness of it used to waken me, and I would find myself shivering with terror. Once I dreamed that I looked up from my desk to find him standing in the doorway, smiling that mirthless smile of his, and I heard him say in his mocking way, Hello, Don, my love, looking wonderfully well. Grass widowhood agrees with you, eh? Don, you must not laugh like that. Come, we will go. You are shivering. Don't, dear, don't. "'See, you have Nora and Max and me to help you. We will put him on his feet. Physically he is not what he should be. I can do much for him.' "'You!' I cried, and the humour of it was too exquisite for laughter. "'For that I gave up Vienna,' said von Gerhard simply. "'You, too, must do your share.' "'My share? I have done my share. He was in the gutter and he was dragging me with him.' When his insanity came upon him, I thanked God for it and struggled up again. Even Nora never knew what that struggle was. Whatever I am, I am in spite of him. I tell you, I could hug my widow's weeds. Ten years ago, he showed me how horrible and unclean a thing can be made of this beautiful life. I was a despairing, cowering girl of twenty then. I am a woman now, happy in her work, her friends, growing broader and saner in thought, quicker to appreciate the finer things in life. And now what? They were dashing off a rollicking folk song indoors. When it was finished there came a burst of laughter and the sharp spat of applauding hands and shouts of approbation. The sound seemed seared upon my brain. I rose and ran down the path toward the waiting machine. There in the darkness I buried my shamed face in my hands and prayed for the tears that would not come. It seemed hours before I heard von Gerhard's firm quick tread upon the gravel path. He moved about the machine, adjusting this and that, then took his place at the wheel without a word. We glided out upon the smooth white road. All the loveliness of the night seemed to have vanished. Only the ugly distorted shadows remained. The terror of uncertainty gripped me. I could not endure the sight of von Gerhard's stern set face. I grasped his arm suddenly so that the machine veered and darted across the road. With a mighty wrench von Gerhard righted it. He stopped the machine at the roadside. "'Careful, Kynchon,' he said gravely. "'Ernst,' I said, and my breath came quickly, chokingly, as though I had been running fast. "'Ernst, I can't do it. I'm not big enough. I can't. I hate him, I tell you, I hate him. My life is my own. I've made it what it is in the face of a hundred temptations, in spite of a hundred pitfalls. I can't lay it down again for Peter Orme to trample. "'Ernst, if you love me, take me away now.' to Vienna, anywhere, only don't ask me to take up my life with him again. I can't, I can't. Love you? repeated Ernst slowly. Yes. Too well. Too well? Yes. Too well for that. Gott sei dank, small one. Too well for that. End of chapter 17